PJ Coogan and Kitchen Table Productions present 20 Minutes With, a short podcast for a busy world. Hello and welcome again to 20 Minutes With, back after a week's break for the October weekend. This is episode number 35. All previous episodes are on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. My guest today was born in Dublin, but has lived in Cork for over 20 years, working as a consultant in emergency medicine. Dr. Chris Luke has always been outspoken, but in his new book called A Life in Trauma, he reveals for the first time how that outspokenness caused him to almost become an outcast, even among those who knew he was right. Chris also talks about his childhood, some of which was spent in an orphanage, and how the values he learned as a youngster shaped him into the doctor and campaigner for change that he's always been. They say we all have a book in us, but the time has to be right for it, At 62, Chris says, for him, that time is now. You're absolutely right. I've been thinking about this for for years and years and years. And of course, I come from a a journalistic family. My father, mother, uncle, grandfather were all journalists of of different sorts. And I've always enjoyed communicating. I love lecturing. That's my absolute favourite part of of medicine and and my my profession. And uh, I, I suppose in the heel of the hunt it was the I suppose the crisis of 2011 you know where I, I you know I I, 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 I muddled my words in, in on a radio program and as a result of that you know there was this kind of online pylon but it wasn't it was by no means just online I mean I was getting abusive phone calls and letters I had uh, you know disciplinary uh, action in the chief executive's office or at least a, a sort of inverted commas inquiry into you know to, into my conduct on the radio and the national airwaves and you know the, the most painful thing of all was the ostracism I you know I was ostracized by huge numbers of general practice colleagues and and trainees and I think if you know me you'll know that uh, I have always thrived on training and teaching apprentices I mean I've always loved to have nursing students medical students any kind of students TY students uh, in and around I mean I, I, I feed off their energy and their enthusiasm and I think most older doctors and nurses and people of all sorts thrive having a young person around particularly if they're interested in, in what you're doing um, so I was, you know, blanked on streets and corridors and shops and, uh, you know, I was kind of no platformed. I wasn't invited to, to for example, seminars, conferences, debates about... Th- for listeners, you had just, you'd spoken out in a way that you have always done, Chris, as long as I know you yes. speak out, but yes. the timing was so unfortunate. Yeah. Just outline that. Well, people. what happened really, PJ, was that... Um, Conditions, I mean, surprise, surprise, conditions in CUH in 2011 were absolutely appalling and unbearable. And what people may not have known is that I had been a consultant for 20 years at that stage almost. And the conditions, the trolleys, as far as the eye can see, the misery all around for everybody. And above all, the difficulty in delivering the kind of really high quality service that people train to deliver, you know, the nurses and the doctors and all the other allied professionals in an emergency department. And it was incredibly difficult. So I had one particularly desperate day where there were people coming in with really, really long-standing problems with their shoulders and backs that they should ideally have gone to see specialists with. People waiting six, eight, ten hours in the waiting room of the old uh, CUH A&E department. Um, and there were people coming in, you know, as, as just it, 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 the, I, I, some of the locums, you know, these doctors we have to hire in a short notice because we haven't got the staff. You know, I'd, 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 I'd been told that some of them were seeing as 
fuse two or three patients in an eight-hour shift. And, of course, they're being paid handsomely for this. So, you know, I was at my absolute wit's end with all of this when I went on to the Pat Kenny show by invitation. And people, you know, people need to also understand that I, I, I rarely put myself out there, you know, m- myself. It's nearly always by invitation to, to offer a, a, a comment or an opinion that I'm on the radio or, or, the, or the, the papers aside in the odd letter. Um, so Pat Kenny invited me onto his show in the Metropole and basically he asked me uh, on stage live on the National Airways, you know, so Chris, tell me what's going on in, in CUH? You know, what's, the, what's, what's causing all this uh, A&E overcrowding? Beyond the, the lack of beds we keep hearing about, beyond that, what other things are causing it? So I basically let fly, and I, I particularly let fly clumsily because I'd just been given a n- notice that there was a major incident unfolding in Cork Airport. You know that there was rumours or reports of, a, of an airplane crashing. This is the Manx 2. This is the Manx 2 air crash in 2011. And of course, by definition, I was going to be involved in any response to that. And indeed I was. And as I sat on the stage, you know, taking his questions, uh, you know, an alert came to me from CUH, you know, please come to CUH, you know, immediately. And... Um, so I just said, look, you know, it's not just about beds. It's also about, you know, people sending patients into the ED when they're not emergency cases. You know, I mean, the emergency department should and must be. If we're to try and sort it at all, it's got to be just for crisis, for accident, for an emergency. Not for people who've had, you know, sore shoulders for years and years and years. Especially when they've got private cover and their family wants to send them to a private orthopaedic surgeon, which is what happened that the night before in CUH and uh, you know we have to have young doctors who are capable of seeing more than you know one patient every three hours and you know as director of training director of postgraduate education in CUH and in Liverpool before that you know I've always said to our young trainees who I think get very very good training in Ireland both in terms of the lectures and the books and the and the teaching uh, and of course the experience but I've always said to them look we, we need you to see one and a half to two patients an hour you know that's the kind of metric so when I'm hearing of people who you know who are you know are locums and are being paid far more than the, the permanent staff and they're seeing one patient every two or three hours you know I'm, I'm sorry I just kind of I basically lost it with the stress and I said you know and we need to have youngsters and I said when I was a baby doctor and that was my that, those were the fatal words when I was a baby doctor and I can assure you PJ you know, last week on Twitter, I saw one first-year doctor describing herself as a baby intern. And I can assure you that elderly doctors in the 60s and 70s often say, when I was a baby doctor... Chris, Adam Kay, whose books you may have read, yes. described himself as a baby doctor. Correct. It doesn't surprise it's me at all to hear It's an absolute normal thing in all professions. And I even said, when I was ba- a baby doctor, we used to be expected to see 10, 14, 16 patients a shift. You know, I admit back in the ancient days of 1982, three, four, but still, you know. I, so anyway, I, I, so in a sense, I let fly, and um, I, I, I gave my tuppence worth, and then I had to rush off, and I rushed straight to CUH, and I got involved in one of the busiest days of my career, clearing CUH so that we could bring in the casualties, then heading off down in, in a police car, guard a car down to the Mercy, where the Mercy had its busiest day because all the patients diverted from the CUH had gone to the Mercy, and we had a hugely busy day, but we coped. 
And then I went to a funeral of a, of a, of a friend in, in Tipperary. I, th- I had completely forgotten the interview. And the next morning I, I opened my email and there was an email from the president of the Irish Medical Organization saying, Dear Chris, um, we've ha- our switchboard has been overwhelmed with calls complaining about you and what you said about young doctors and GPs. And uh, I was taken aback. And interestingly, the, 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 the previous president of the IMO, uh, my a great friend and colleague, said, you know, defended me immediately. He says, but is there anything that Chris Luke said that wasn't the truth or accurate? To which the answer was sort of no, but he shouldn't have said what he said the way he said it. So that's what I was stuck. And then he, over the next day, week, month, year, I was blackballed effectively. I was sent to Coventry. I was ostracised, whatever you want to call it. And I had young doctors, I had old doctors, I had many, many GPs, um, you know, uh, spitting venom at me in my direction. Just for using a term that the entire no, 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 medical... I had actually, no, no, the, the, the junior doctors were saying that I had called them baby doctors and implied that they were lazy, which of course I hadn't. I'd said it was the locums that we were having to employ who were seeing two or three doctors. And by the way, I often spoke little or no English. And what I said about the GP, I said some, a small number of GPs will insist on sending non-emergency, long-standing cases to the ED, at the emergency department at CUH and the Mercy, even when they must know that it's bedlam there and the elderly are having to wait 10, 12, 18 hours because of the overwhelming numbers. And that's really what I said. I said a small number. Uh, were you know sending patients to the emergency department and, and you know and, and that is remains a, the fact it's a small number and it remains the locums I was concerned about and all the detail that is is in the book it it, it hurt you physically and mentally and did, is that what led to the burnout Chris that you had because we talk so much on the program and have talked about burnout you've been there it's an illness it's not just being knackered Yes, it is. It's a, it's as I say in the book. It's it's a, it's an incredibly interesting illness unless you have it. But actually, the WHO have defined it as a workplace-related illness. So that's absolutely crucial. It's related to the workplace. And no, it didn't cause the burnout. I'd had burnout for years. I'd had burnout in in the late nineties in Liverpool with the gang warfare. You know, opening up gangsters, taking bullets out of gangsters. You know, the heroin. You know, huge levels of violence, drink, poverty, you know. So, I mean, I was really worn out by that stage. And I had a couple of other crises, you know. I'd had a kind of panic attack on stage in front of all the the surgeons of Ireland, which had been really traumatic, but I had gone on. But what was so devastating about the situation on the radio there in 2011 was that my entire career, PJ, has been built on being a likeable, popular and kind person. I have, I, I've always preferred, I mean, I've said it, it's, it sounds a bit like a bizarre, weird cliche. I have always preferred love to loot. And I'm regarded as some kind of eccentric, you know, for that reason. But I pride myself on being kind. And I, I will say the one thing that has kept me going is the love and affection of my patients and of my, of my nursing colleagues who have constantly told me, you know, that I have been kind and I have made a difference. And that has kept me going. But to lose the support en masse of so many youngsters and so many general practitioner colleagues. You know, I mean, my oldest friends are GPs. And I was a youngster in in the worst conditions in Ireland in the early 80s when we worked every second night, every second weekend, got paid tuppence halfpenny, paid for all our own training. And I had to leave Ireland because there were no jobs. So, you know, it was absolutely heartbreaking. And of course, the tragedy was... 
I didn't know who was going to say hello and who was going to scowl at me. And even my, my, my wife was a medical rep going around the GP surgeries of, of Munster at the time. And sort of every second GP would say, oh, are you rated that, that you know, bleep, bleep uh, in, in, in Cork? And, you know, so that was indirectly uh, extremely cr- uh, crushing as well. I didn't, and I said it until I read it, I knew about the interview. I'd heard the interview. But I never realised the, the consequences. And, the, and that was the first time in my 40-odd years, really, in, as a career, that I had to take four, six-odd weeks off purely for my mental health because I just couldn't cope. I couldn't cope with the, 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 the sense that as a very, very senior GP in Cork had sh- screamed at me in, on the pitch side in Cork Con, where I was a, a, a coach and the honorary medical officer to the under-11s and the under-12s and the under-13s, which was a, a source of great joy to me, because as you know, I'm a blow into Cork, and my six years in Cork Con were, were the, the happiest, and, uh, of my, uh, of, and they made all the difference in making such great friends there. And to have that in front of all the boys and the parents and the coaches and to have been to be screamed at by a really senior GP who had once before been so friendly to me, you'll be you're the most hated consultant in Ireland and you always will be. And I felt that like a, a, a knife to my heart because he won't have known this, but I was not some fat cat brass necked consultant heading off to my yacht. I was one of these unusual weirdos who actually, actually cared because I'd come from a place of pain. So when, you know, politicians say, I feel your pain, you know, that's always questionable. But I can assure people who are in distress in an emergency department, I'm with them. I'm there for them, you know, and I was there for them. I can see the pain in your face mm. as, you, as you tell me this story now. Yeah. And as I said, it's all detailed in the book. And the kind of... Was this the time to tell that story in this detail? And was that the motivation for the book? Yes, and to be absolutely honest with you, I felt after, t- I'd let 10 years go, it was the anniversary of the incident and two or three uh, friends kept saying to me, look, you've got to write the story, write the story, the tricky childhood and all the other sort of things. And, you know, ultimately it was Brian O'Connell, my, my great friend in RTE, my, who's, uh, you know, my reporter friend, uh, who basically nudged me over the line in, in terms of doing it. And uh, I, I have him to thank, and I've said he's a lot to answer for. <laughs> the, <clears throat> the, the dedication to the service of being a doctor, and I've interviewed you 50 times, I'd say, Chris, despite all the hardship and the trauma over the years. You love your job and have always loved your job. Yeah, it's, it's an absolute blessing, um, you know. The thing is, BJ, I, had a, I mean, I had a tricky start, but you know, in the scheme of things, it's no more tricky than a billion other people, two billion other people. And I was absolutely blessed because even though my mother had to give me away as a baby, initially, she hovered like a lioness around me, near me, you know, within a mile of me all my life, when I was in, certainly in, in my first 10 years. And when she could, she took me out of the orphanage. Uh, I was blessed with a, a, basically a brilliant mother. She wasn't, I mean, my only thing would be that she wasn't very good at intimate affection. But other than that, she was a brilliant mother, a brilliant strategist, a lioness, as I say. And I was blessed with being farmed out to lots of other wonderful women, her friends who minded me. So I got to know and, and be loved within lots of other families as a youngster. Uh, and you know, I, I've had an incredible opportunity, and I, I have, I'm blessed with friends and a wonderful family, and, and, and great neighbours in Cork. And I love, I mean, I, I'm blessed to be living in Cork. 
um, but I, I love I love medicine. It's so fascinating. It's got so much potential. There's it's it's a bit like a rugby team. There's a, a place for every type of human being within medicine. There are dozens of different types of, of doctor, uh, from you know preventive to pharmaceutical to you know cutting surgeon to public health. You name it. There's a role for everybody. And when you had to retire a number of years ago, earlier than you wanted to, for your own personal medical reasons, it took, you, you had to learn that, because I remember talking to you at the time, it hurt you to retire. Yes, and, you know, I, I have said it, and I've said it very honestly in the book, I was humiliated and ashamed because, you know, I, I, like probably like almost every medic, I, I started out as a perfectionist. And, you know, medicine really does demand a certain amount of perfectionism in the certain, certain the first 10, 20 years if you want to get on. And you do tend to get in, there's a culture of beating yourself up about, you know, the, the various metrics of, you know, awards, publications, you know, for some people it's salary, for other people it's a knighthood, for other people it's, you know, gongs. Um, but for me it was being seen as someone who made a difference someone who at one point in his career did inspire young people and some and, and, and someone who for years had wonderful times in emergency departments all around these islands with incredible good humoured brilliant nurses and, 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 and doctors and radiographers and so on um, so I, I did I, I did feel a bit broken for a good six to twelve months, but uh, you know what? We it was kind a of painful arthritic condition, wasn't it? Well, you I just couldn't continue. Yeah, it. I had a I had a spinal arthritis, which caused a, a significant nerve damage. And you know, in a nutshell, the key issue was I couldn't write at speed. I, I I've, I've got nerve damage affecting my hand, my dominant right hand. I can't really write. I can't put shoulders back in. Uh, my hand is not quite strong enough to put a, a line in, for example. So, it, for for simple practical reasons, I couldn't fulfil my my obligations. Which isn't to say I can't think and I can't talk so I continue to lecture I, I write I'm doing committee work I work for the Mercy Foundation and um, so I'm doing plenty I'm hoping you came to back to the front line of the pandemic didn't you? I came back last year in the first wave and I was absolutely honored and delighted to be invited back um, and it was an absolute joy to be welcomed back to but you know in the mercy for you know I mean uh, there was the, 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 the beaming faces and the wonderful warm welcome and the love I I, 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 I you know I was showered with in Grenville Place when I went back last year was again was a, a wonder to behold. <coughs> Chris you've always talked about the state of the health service you've devoted your life to it um, you, you, you point out its faults and failings in the book, but you also point out its positive elements. As you contemplate your life, and obviously will work on for a few more years, I suspect, what do you make of our public health service now in 2021? Well, I hope that uh, as the years unfold uh, going forward, and as the pandemic fades into distant memory, and we learn to just, you know, add our coronavirus vaccine every year to the flu vax. I hope we look back on this time as a time of wonderful, genuinely impressive solidarity uh, on the part of the people of Ireland, you know, of whom 90% are vaccinated. You know, just compare that particular metric with, with, the, with, with the similar figures all around the world. You know, there's less than 1% of people vaccinated in sub-Saharan Africa. That's a feature of poverty and, you know, disorganisation and, and, you know, 
corruption and, and, and a lack of investment in, in, in systems in the, in the states. Some of the numbers are absolutely woeful because of people's resistance and misinformation. So for all sorts of reasons, the vaccine levels uh, in Ireland are a reason to celebrate. I think the performance of the health service staff from bottom to top has been absolutely magnificent. You know, I've, 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 I've been in testing centres, I've worked at the front line, I have been to the HSE HQ repeatedly for very on business, uh, and at every level, the, 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 the solidarity, the pulling together, the consensus, the, 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 the unanimity, the unity of purpose, and the coherence and cohesion has been absolutely fantastic. And I think we should be incredibly proud of that. And even just within my own specialty, when I came back from the UK, from the NHS, um, following the sort of training that every Irish medic really sort of has to undergo overseas for a while, I had spent 14 years waiting for my job. Even then, there were only 14 consultants in emergency medicine in Ireland, about. Now there's about 100, and we have hundreds of brilliant medical students who are uh, intent on careers in emergency medicine. We have dozens of utterly brilliant trainees, and we have... Uh, yeah, and, I, I, and it's not a word I, I bandy about, but we have a number of geniuses scattered around the state who are leading the way. In, and, and I don't want to embarrass people naming them in Cork, but we, I mean, Cork is now like a mecca for excellence in pre-hospital care. You know, I mentioned Jason and Hugh and Adrian, if I might. I'll mention Connor and Steve and Owen, you know, and Darren, and, and again, Adrian and Rory and Jerry and Ever in in, in, in in the city, in CUH in the Mercy, uh, and and of course you know, Robin who's just arrived, one of my former uh, elective students about 15 years ago. To have seen her now take over my my post in 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 Cork, sitting in my chair and sending me a lovely Twitter hello was again a real joy. So like all all around the place in terms of the quality of care, the innovation, the development of the service, we are I think on the brink of a golden age in emergency medicine. Which sounds weird when you still hear about the waits of eight, ten, twelve hours. But once the pandemic is over, I want people to think. We were able to collectively pivot as a nation and as a service of 100,000 nurses, doctors, ancillary workers, other professionals, and just devote ourselves to one purpose, which is to save the nation from this ghastly virus, this plague. I think that we should just apply the same sort of ambition and determination and devotion to improving frontline care and we just need to get organised. I remember always my great tutor, my great mentor in Edinburgh, Dr Keith Little, who said the art of resuscitation is organisation and that applies for all medicine. First and foremost, it's about getting organised, identifying priorities and assigning tasks to everybody. I think we do that and we, we look back constantly for the next 10 years on how well we did and we emulate what we did in the pandemic will make an enormous difference to the quality of care for everybody who needs our health service. I've often mentioned to my listeners in passing over the last year and a half that one thing we have learned from this pandemic is there should be no such word as can't and we should apply that going forward in the health service. Do you agree with me? I couldn't agree more PJ, I couldn't agree more. Um, anything is possible and we have seen how 
Despite the fact that all the conversation in 2019 was about the failures, the deficits, the failings of the health service, look what we did in the subsequent two years. An incredible effort on the part of everybody. And as I said at one point, when I went back to work in the Mercy last year and I got a phone call from Connor DC, who's now the Professor of Emergency Medicine, but started out as my, one of my first interns, as, well, as, a, as a brilliant first intern, first year doctor, but you know, 15 years out, here he is, and he rang me, he says, welcome home, Chris, he said. And I said to him, Connor, are, are you shattered? Meaning, you know, all the work that was going on to prepare the CUH and the Mercy for, for, for the, the, the onslaught. And he said, no, shattered, no, 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 no. He said, but I'm really excited. I said, I said, Connor, you know what? You are a sick person, but you know what? I'm really excited too. And we both roared laughing because that defines emergency physicians and emergency nursing. You know what? They actually love this stuff. Chris, it's a, it's a thumping good read, as Gabo used to say, and thank you. PJ, it's an honour and a pleasure, and thank you as I've written in my inscription in the book to you. Thank you for listening when others wouldn't or couldn't. As we speak, Chris Luke's book is top of Ireland's non-fiction bestseller list. Congratulations, Doc. Thanks for the chat and for the very kind words. And thanks, as always, to you for listening. I'm back with a new interview next Saturday. If you'd like to catch up with older episodes, a reminder, you'll find them on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. So until next time, have a good week and stay safe. Thank you for listening to 20 Minutes With, a short podcast for a busy world. Please help to spread the word and watch social media for news of our next episode.